nine o'clock by my watch. Um, welcome to our panel session on engaging the problematical past at historic sites. Uh, I'm Robert Wyaneth of the University of South Carolina, where I'm a professor of history, a director of our public history program, and a practicing public historian. This panel is sponsored by the National Council on Public History, which is a membership-based historical organization headquartered in Indianapolis. Its members um, come primarily from North America, uh, but also extend globally. Uh, for those of you who are not members, uh, one way you may know the National Council on Public History is through our journal called the uh, Public Historian, uh, published through the University of California Press. Uh, the public historian um, is, is really an intellectual leader and, and in some ways publishes cutting-edge research uh, in the field of public history. And receiving the public historian is one of the benefits of membership in the NCPH. And I would like at this point to urge you to consider joining uh, the National Council on Public History. Uh, some of the material in that back table uh, might be of interest to you. Um, it's a current issue of our newsletter, uh, Public History News, uh, which this issue has an interesting exchange on some of the challenges of being an historical consultant. Historical consultants are one of the constituencies of NCPH, and I think you find uh, this forum on the subject uh, very, very interesting. Uh, there are also uh, membership cards back there uh, with both a student, a new professional, and an individual uh, membership. NCPH thinks of itself as kind of the umbrella organization uh, in the field of, of public history uh, that brings together public historians uh, who, can, who, who work in a variety of venues and methodologies, from historic preservation to historic site interpretation, uh, oral historians, folks who do documentary uh, filmmaking, really any venue and any methodology that's engaged in communicating history uh, to public audiences. <coughs> so do consider joining NCPH. Our annual meetings are always in the spring. I wish they were always in the fall so we could meet jointly with AASLH. I've long felt that um, we are sister organizations uh, with a lot in common and it would be mutually beneficial if we could meet at the same time, but AASLH always meets in the fall. We always meet um, in the spring. The upcoming meeting is in Pensacola, Florida uh, in April. We have three speakers today. Each is going to describe a case study where he or she has engaged uh, the difficult or controversial past. Each of these case studies is intrinsically interesting. But I've asked each of our speakers to extract from their case study a lesson or a best practice for how to engage the problematical past in a constructive way. So I hope that each of these case studies drawn from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas will resonate with your own experience. And we've set up the, um, the time to allow, we hope, 20 to 30 minutes at the end 
uh, where you can exchange uh, your own war stories uh, from the trenches of public history, and we can talk generally about uh, these kinds of issues. I'm going to uh, do something that I wish more moderators would do, and that is to introduce the speakers as they come to the podium so you know who they are. Um, there's an additional reason we're doing that is we've had to jigger with the, uh, the order on the program for technical reasons. Uh, we're confident this will be a technology gaff-free uh, presentation. Uh, and if we start with Marty Matthews, I think we have a better chance of that happening. <laughs> Not because he's technologically adept, uh, just that we're concerned about the stability of his laptop. Um, so, <laughs> not to mention his mind. <laughs> so, Marty Matthews is, is our lead-off speaker. Uh, he is curator of research at the North Carolina Division of Historic Sites and Properties, and he also teaches graduate public history courses at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. He received a PhD in United States history from the University of South Carolina and is the author of a well-received book on Charles Pinckney entitled Forgotten Founder, The Life and Times of Charles Pinckney. Forgotten founder of the United States and, and drafter of the United States Constitution. Uh, in terms of his role with NCPH, I should say that all four of us uh, who are at the podium today are active in the National Council on Public History. Marty is a member of the editorial board of the Public Historian. His case study uh, today is entitled Black, excuse me, that's Rebecca's who was supposed to be first, uh, interpreting, <laughs> interpreting a Controversial Legacy at a North Carolina Governor's Birthplace. Marty Matthews. Uh, Bob is an old man. He is my mentor, and you see how old I am, so you know how old that makes him. Uh, Dr. Bob, as I, as I call him, was very good to me during my graduate school career and continues to be so uh, in my professional career, and I thank him for inviting me uh, to take uh, part in this panel presentation and to, uh, well, I guess, for hoodwinking me and getting me on the uh, editorial board of the public historian. He's a Oh, you didn't? Oh, well, someone else is a little... Well, okay. Engaging the problematical past at historic sites, this laptop makes me want to change the name of this to engaging the problematical computers at historic conferences, but we'll see how this works. Please keep your fingers crossed. Okay, we're going to be interpreting a controversial... Leg uh, I'm going to be talking about interpreting a controversial legacy at a North Carolina governor's birthplace. We tell stories in our business, so I'll start off by telling a couple of stories. Uh, after I tell the stories, I'll talk about uh, how we have dealt with the controversy. And I'll go ahead and be up front and tell you the best practices that I'm going to mention specifically are uh, paying attention to, to Freeman Tilden's admonition that the chief aim of interpretation is not to inform but to provoke and be provocative, and then also community involvement, involving the community when there are controversial issues. Go to the people who are probably most likely to be concerned with your subject matter and get their involvement. And you'll see, you'll see these best practices played out, I hope, as I make my short presentation here. All right, the first story I'll tell you is about a man named Charles B. Aycock. This is Governor Aycock. Governor Aycock was born uh, November the 1st, 1859, in Wayne County, North Carolina. That's about a 75 miles from the capital of North Carolina, Raleigh. 
he was a, a school teacher by the time he was 17, and because of that, he had a lifelong love and concern for education. Uh, he attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, became a lawyer, became a, uh, a, a well-sought uh, after orator, and eventually a politician. In 1900, he was elected governor of the state of North Carolina. He served from 1901 to 1905, and because of his initiatives that dealt with educational issues, he was known and has been known ever since as the education governor in North Carolina. He was responsible for building one school for every day of his term in office. And he built not only white schools, but black schools. And some figures indicate that the amount of money that he spent to build schools uh, for the African-American population exceeded that that he spent on the white population, probably because there were fewer African-American schools at the outset of his, of his term of office. And you'll see what that's all about in a minute. When Governor Aycock uh, ended his first term, he chose not to run again. He became sort of a, a senior statesman in the Democratic Party after that time. Uh, in 1911, he was toying with the idea of running for the United States Senate, but on April the 12th, uh, I'm sorry, in April of 1912, he was in Birmingham, Alabama, giving a speech on education, which is the subject that he obviously loved, and in the middle of that speech, he had a heart attack and he died. His last words Sometimes on Sundays, they would ask me down to the churches to talk, and I always talked about education. So he sort of became a martyr to the cause of education in North Carolina. He is uh, one of the two most venerated governors in our state's history, the other one being the Civil War governor, Zebulon B. Vance. There are statues of both of these men on our state capitol grounds. There are statues of both of these men in the national capitol in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1959, his birthplace was opened as one of the earliest in what is now 27 state-owned and operated historic sites that are administered by my division, the Division of State Historic Sites and, Pro and Properties. Uh, the photograph in the... Oh, I need to turn these lights down. Let me... Hold on one second. First gap. Sorry. Uh, the top left photograph is opening day ceremonies in 1959. Uh, the bottom is the site, those buildings as they appear today. The, the building on the left in the upper picture uh, is his birthplace, and it is the actual birthplace of the governor. The building on the right is a kitchen that was brought in from elsewhere, or a building that was brought in from elsewhere and is interpreted as the kitchen. Uh, on the right is a school building uh, that dates to about 1893 that was brought in from the local area and is on the site to interpret education uh, during the 1890s. In 1962, a visitor center opened uh, that has exhibits and uh, uh, artifacts that relate to the governor's uh, life. Recently, those exhibits have been updated. Uh, and I'll show you some of those exhibits in a few minutes. So that's the story of Charles B. Acock, Governor Charles B. Acock, the well-loved, well-respected North Carolina's education governor. Now, the next story I have to tell you is uh, uh, not quite as pleasant as Charles B. Acock's life story that I just told you. And it's the connection between the next story that I'm going to tell you and Charles B. Acock's life that makes this a controversial uh, issue for us. 
This is a headline from the New York Herald in November of 1898. It is in the wake of what has come to be known as the Wilmington Race Riots of November 1898. The Wilmington Race Riots are recognized as the only coup d'etat in U.S. history. Uh, a, uh, a duly elected mayor and city council in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, were driven from office by white supremacists in the wake of that election. What had preceded this, and I'll have to be very quickly, uh, have to do this very quickly, uh, a political, uh, uh, two political entities fused, and they became known as the fusionists, and those were the populists in North Carolina and the republicans in North Carolina. And both the populists and the republicans, and especially the republicans, consisted of African Americans. And this party was pretty uh, influential in North Carolina politics all through the, the latter part of the 19th century. All that came to an end in 1898. In 1898, the chairman of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, a man named Fernifold Simmons, used a three-prong attack on the fusionists. And that's, that the, those three prongs consisted of, of uh, written attacks, and he used most of the state's newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Charlotte Observer, uh, uh, oratory or, or, or uh, uh, verbal attacks, uh, a verbal prong, and he used many of the state's most famous orators to, to engage in that aspect, and then uh, a terror uh, prong, and uh, that consisted of folks known as red shirts and members of the Klan terrorizing uh, folks as they went to the polls. As a result of that, in 1898, the Democratic Party was able to seize power and gain power once again in North Carolina. It was not a, uh, uh, a, an election year for the governor, so the Republican governor remained in office until 1900. Uh, in 1898, after the Democrats seized power again, that power seize did not happen at the polls in Wilmington, North Carolina. So in Wilmington, North Carolina, led by the efforts of a man named Alfred Moore Waddell, uh, Alfred Moore Waddell and nine co-conspirators uh, created this uh, uh, insurrection where the mayor, uh, the town council, were driven from office. Uh, the state's only newspaper that was run by an African-American, the offices were burned, uh, and African-Americans were killed and forced to leave town. The North Carolina General Assembly commissioned a report on the Wilmington race riot, and as a result of that, uh, there's been a, uh, uh, the report has been completed, it has been published. There's a website that's devoted to the Wilmington race riot, uh, and there's a PowerPoint that you can actually download and look at uh, at this website. I'll show you one of the, some of the text or one page of the PowerPoint with text and images, and that depicts uh, the African Americans who had been banished from Wilmington uh, an image of their departure from Wilmington in the wake of the, of the Wilmington race riots. Where does Charles B. Acock fit into this? And that's our connection. This is from uh, Campbell University, a history professor at Campbell University. This is a, uh, a website that he has for his, his students when he teaches North Carolina history. And there you see Governor Acock and you can see his role as a major stump speaker. He was a part of the second prong that I mentioned, uh, uh, Charles B. Acock, a white supremacist who was in favor of the actions of Fernifold Simmons, Alfred Waddell Moore, and others. In 1900, Charles B. Acock ran for the governorship on a white supremacy campaign, 
and his old friend Alfred Waddell, uh, Alfred Moore Waddell, supported him with quotes like this. You are Anglo-Saxons, you are armed and prepared, and you will do your duty. Go to the polls tomorrow, and if you find the Negro out voting, tell him to leave the polls, and if he refuses, kill him, shoot him down in his tracks. We shall win tomorrow if we have to do it with guns. Back to the uh, PowerPoint uh, on the Wilmington race riots. Uh, this is some text from that PowerPoint that talks about the aftermath of the race riot, the legacy of the race riots, and the fact that Jim Crow is alive and well in North Carolina from 1900 until the Civil Rights era. When Charles B. Acock became the governor, he addressed uh, a group of African Americans at the Negro State Fair in Raleigh. This is what he said to them. The law which separates you from the white people of the state socially always has been and always will be inexorable, and it need not concern you or me whether the law is violated elsewhere. It will never be violated in the South. Its violation would be to your destruction as well as to the injury of the whites. And so this is where we have to deal with Charles B. Acock's controversy. And how did we do that? Well, we had, have tried to put into uh, the exhibit uh, panels and images and artifacts that deal realistically with the problem, but without being too offensive, without being too mild. We take pride in being criticized for not going far enough or by going too far. We get both those criticisms. Uh, we have to remember that the ACOC site is visited by a lot of young school children. Uh, there are farm animals there. They do interpretation that is geared to uh, fourth graders, eighth graders. So we have to be careful with some of the images that we, that we, that we show there uh, so we don't show some of the more inflammatory ones. Uh, this is a, a panel that talks about fusion politics, and you can see the governor, the Republican governor, up in the top right-hand corner, some African-American leaders there in the middle, George White being on the left, who was a famous congressman. This is the panel where we talk about the election of 1898 and the Democrats seizing power. We have a reproduction red shirt there, and we talk about Acock's role in the Wilmington race riots. Uh, I'll zoom in on a couple of the images here. There are lots of images that are very offensive and very uh, inflammatory that were published in newspapers. They use the N-word. They have uh, grotesque character, uh, caricatures of African Americans. Uh, we obviously could not use those in a setting where there were going to be school children coming in. So here are two of the, uh, I don't want to call them less offensive because they are still offensive, but the, the, they're not as extreme as the other ones. I don't know how well you can read this from the audience. The one on the left says, the fruit that we all love, and that fruit is the white supremacy plum. We will pick it on November the 8th. And then the image on the right is uh, uh, the flag-draped version, the, the, the feminine version of uh, America being uh, shackled by the ball and chain of Negro rule. This is the uh, panel that deals with his election in 1900. A couple of more, a couple of additional uh, editorial cartoons. The cane was sent to him by someone who who signed himself Johnny Reb, and Governor Acock used that throughout his campaign. Uh, in the very middle here, that is a white supremacy button that we show that was used in the Acock campaign. 
We're not the only ones who are having to deal with Governor Aycock. The Democratic Party in North Carolina has for years had uh, mirror, mirror, mirroring the national Democratic Party's Jefferson-Jackson dinner. They've had the Vance-Aycock dinner. Uh, this is the last year that they will have the Vance-Aycock dinner. They will now retire Aycock's name with honor, they say, and they will no longer call it the Vance-Aycock dinner. So this is the atmosphere and the, client, uh, uh, the climate in which we're having to in interpret Charles B. Aycock. What we decided to do uh, in order to involve the community, we work every other semester with the East Carolina University Public History Program, and we work with a group of their students, and it just so happened that we needed to do some, some things in the lobby of the Charles B. Aycock birthplace. And so we worked with this class, and we came up with a way to talk about segregated schools and integrated and the process of integration in the local area. And in order to do that, we conducted oral histories of three individuals who either attended segregated schools or who were involved in the process of integration. One of our students was, was very, very adamant that we include the American Indian story in this because it is one that is not very well known. Uh, there were American Indian schools in North Carolina, but most American Indians went to school in African-American schools. So the first person, I'm going to show you about a five-minute clip of some of these folks who we interviewed, of all three of them, actually. The first person you'll see is an American Indian named Dreamweaver. He is uh, uh, of the Lumbee Indian tribe in southeastern North Carolina. The second person you'll see is Reverend James Williams talking about attending a segregated African-American school. And the third person that you'll be seeing is a man named Glenwood Burden. Glenwood Burden is the first, man, first black man to attend what was, up until that point, all-white Goldsboro High School. So I'll let you take a, 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 a listen to what these folks had to say about their experiences. The schools were uh, really interested in producing their own teachers out of their own school system and having them come back. Uh, the teachers would help students who wanted to become teachers. They would help pay for their college education, help pay for their lodging, whatever they had to do to help them go through college to come back to teach at the school. And so scholarships weren't necessary. The teachers helped the students go if they really wanted to go. And uh, it was... It was an extension of your family and your community. And my parents had grown up as close friends to their schoolmates as they were to their families. And their schoolmates went on to become teachers and came back and taught us. All right, this is Reverend Williams. Some good history, you know. It was we didn't have all the money. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have what the kids got now, you know. But we made do with what we had, you know. We didn't have a whole lot. Well, the school was uh, it was a segregated school, and uh, we didn't have a whole lot. Sometimes the books was secondhand books, or hand down books, and uh, and we had some of the kids were below poverty line. Some of them didn't have sufficient uh, uh, monies to buy food with and uh, sometimes they would the teacher would give them talk to the administrator and get them a job working in a cafeteria or something like that that's what I did and I was in the property line and uh, I would work in the cafeteria to earn the money to 
And this is Glenn Woodburden talking about integrating the schools. Uh, as a junior, going into my locker, which just happened to be on the bottom tier, and uh, I saw myself being surrounded by shoes. I'm going into my locker, and I look around at all these shoes. I said, oh, God, this is it. You know, I'm going to get strangled. I'm going to get hung and thrown away and head cut off and all, all that negativism. You kind of, everything had been kind of, you know, whatever until then. No physical violence, no whatever. But now it comes to face me, uh, not only the verbal piece, but I think one of them pushed me or something to the effect back in, uh, toward the locker to say that, what, yeah, we're going to kill you. Just like, I mean, point blank, we came to assassinate you, to take you out of this school because we don't want integration, and you brought it here, and the only way to get rid of it is to get rid of you. And so I got very, very scared for my life, but I got mad at the same time. Oh, in the madness, in the anger. It's like a part that you play in the, in the studio. I said, uh, you going to do what? He said, yeah, we came to kill you. I said, you can't kill me. I can't kill you. What are you talking about? I said, uh, uh, if you put your hands on me, you must have don't realize what you're doing. What do you mean? I was, and I was dialoguing. By that time, I had them talking. I said, if you touch me, put your hands on me, and it's found out that you did this, I said, I know 1,500 black folk right now that will meet you at the bottom of the steps in 30 minutes. He said, what? I said, yeah. I got an army of 1,500 people right now that'll take you out. I didn't know that. I said, yeah, it's really that serious. What you want? I'm making up. It's so like, as we go, I'm getting what bigger and bigger. <laughs> I'm playing into their madness, scared for my life. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I had no other tool but to verbalize to use what I had. My Spanish teacher is on the positive side. Uh, she was one of the lead tutors as well. <clears throat> and for her, it was an honor to help me, to help integration. She saw me as that, 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 that person, that element or whatever. And uh, so she was super supportive. I mean, like after school, she would call me and make sure over the weekends, uh, what can I do to get us ahead? Because you got to get this. You're going to get it. We had a program uh, at the ACOC site shortly after we, we conducted these interviews where we invited friends and family. Uh, we probably had 150 African Americans at that site, and uh, that is by far the largest uh, number of African Americans and, and in American Indians who had ever been at that site at one time. We were able to screen those videos. They were very well received. The sad part of all this is about two months after we filmed Glenwood Burden's video or, or his interview, he passed away, and his family was there, and they were very emotional, and they were very appreciative of what we did. So we were able to connect with the community in that way. So 
Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm out of time, so I'll, I'll stop now. I'll tell you that the exhibit is in the design phase right now. We're going to put an exhibit up, and we're going to feature a, a, an interactive that has these interviews. One thing we didn't do, and we regret not doing that, and I'll ask, I'll ask your opinion about this maybe for our discussion later on, we, we failed to, to interview any white people about their experiences in segregated schools or the process of integration. Uh, and so that might be something we can do in the future. But thank you for your time. Oh, one more, one more thing. We have an out with Governor Aycock. He left us, us this quote for anyone who would say, we don't need to talk about this kind of stuff anymore. Y'all have all heard that. When I shall have done wrong, I shall not expect approval. I do not wish it. I want to know my mistakes to the end that I may correct them because I am certain that I shall be judged at last by the whole tenor of my administration and by no one particular act. Thank you, Governor Aycock, for giving us that. And the computer lasted, huh? It did. Congratulations. Could you turn the light on for us, too? Do you need to do something? I'll introduce you. You can do whatever. Our second speaker is Rebecca DeBrosco. Uh, Rebecca is the supervisor of compliance, tax incentives, and survey uh, for the South Carolina State Historic Preservation Office. She holds a master's degree in public history from the University of South Carolina and an undergraduate degree from Tulane University in New Orleans. She recently received Tulane's Newcomb College Young Alumna Award for her work researching and identifying segregated schools in South Carolina, and we've put that web address on the orange flyer on the table in the back, and you can pick that up um, as you leave, and I'll remind you about that. Uh, Rebecca is also a recent graduate of Leadership South Carolina and is a board member for the recent Past Preservation Network and the South Carolina Archaeology Public Outreach Division. She is active in the National Council on Public um, History through service on the New Professional Awards Committee. And her case study is entitled Black and White and Red All Over Marking South Carolina's Difficult Past. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I, can you see this okay? No, yes, kind of. Okay, dim the lights. <laughs> no one can fall asleep. Well, this morning I wanted to um, talk about a couple of experiences that we've had um, at the State Historic Preservation Office. We don't own any property, but we do administer um, the South Carolina Historical Marker Program. And um, this is the statewide marker program. It began in 1936, and um, it's run by the state of South Carolina, but of course it's not funded by us. Um, if you want to have a marker um, marking a place or an event, you need to raise the money for the marker yourself. <laughs> um, however, all the text that goes on the statewide marker, the state-approved marker program, does have to go through our office and has to be approved by um, the director of the Department of Archives and History. So um, prior to about 1995, the majority of the markers in South Carolina marked Anglo-Saxon, white, Caucasian history. But we started to do a really concerted effort um, to mark African-American sites 
about in the mid-1990s. Um, we have over 1,300 markers in South Carolina, and only 14% of them are associated with African American history. However, that 14% basically has been markers done in the past 15 years. Generally, the markers that are marking African American sites are celebratory in nature. They celebrate, you know, accomplishments done in education, with churches and religion and things like that. Um, but recently, two of the markers that have been proposed have been marking some difficult past um, sites. The historical markers that we have are forged from cast aluminum. They have a silver background and black text. Um, they are placed as near to the spot of the historical event or building as possible while still being accessible to the public and viewable from a public right-of-way. Um, as I mentioned before, all of the markers are paid for by the community that chooses to erect them, but all the text is approved by a trained historian that we have here on our staff. So in this presentation, I want to discuss the negotiations around two recent historical markers applications that have come in through our office that are to be erected to tell the story of two racially-based killings in South Carolina. At the, um, after I discuss each marker, I'll share with you some of our lessons learned. And I'm also going to share with you some suggestions from the South Carolina African American Heritage Commission that they have in interpreting the past. So, um, kind of around the same time as Governor Aycock at the end of Reconstruction after the Civil War, South Carolina's white citizens were ready to take back the government um, from the Republicans. From We had a, um, a lot of elected black representatives and senators in the House, and um, we were ready, uh, the white supremacists were ready to get rid of that. Um, <laughs> so in the gu first gubernatorial race after the end of Reconstruction, there was violence all over the state fighting over um, the candidates. And it really came to a head in Hamburg, which was a very small town in rural Aiken County, which is near the Georgia border. There, um, across the state, both blacks and whites belonged to legal or illegal militias, and armed conflict was very frequent. In Hamburg, after a fight between two militias, about 200 white armed men tried to disarm 38 black militiamen. During the fighting, one white man, Mackay Merriweather, was killed. But two blacks were killed trying to escape from the fighting. The whites captured over, over 30 escaping blacks and executed four of them. In 1916, the General Assembly paid for the erection of a monument near Hamburg to Merriweather, the sole white killed in the riot. The entire story was not told in the public marker until now, when the city of North Augusta, which is what Hamburg became, has chosen to fund a marker to tell a more balanced story. And this is part of the um, marker text funded by the General Assembly of South Carolina. In life, he exemplified the highest ideal of Anglo-Saxon civilization. By his death, he assured the ch to the children of his beloved land the supremacy of that ideal. So it was only marked for the one white man that died. When was that one 1916. So just now, in 2010, we're trying to you know, tell the whole story of what happened as far as markers go. 
So, um, lessons kind of learned from this first marker. As initially proposed, the city of North Augusta titled the marker the Hamburg Conflict. Um, but when we were talking with them, you know, we, we believed, and this kind of goes back to, you know, how far do you go and don't be too cautious, um, that the title was really too neutral. It didn't reflect the racial violence that was occurred during the event. So we recommended and the city accepted the change um, on the marker title to the Hamburg Massacre. So, you know, that was kind of the first lesson learned with interpreting things. Beware of being overly politically correct and neutralizing some of the events that happened. Um, also, one of the main goals for this new marker, the city wanted to list all of the men killed during the fighting, not just Meriwether, as was, was done in the 1916 marker. So this is kind of a reinterpretation, a retelling, a, a effort to tell the entire story um, that the blacks who died were just as important for memorialization, and um, you know that kind of helps address overall everything that happened. Um, the marker, these two markers are both so new that they haven't even been erected yet, so I don't have photographs of the markers. If any of you are interested in the full text of the marker, feel free to email me. I didn't put it all on here because it's a lot, but if you're interested, I would be happy to share that with you. The second marker is up in um, the upstate of South Carolina. And it discusses the last recorded lynching in South Carolina in 1947. Um, reports on the lynching of Willie Earl in rural Greenville County, South Carolina, were nationwide when this occurred. It was published in the New York Magazine and was published in newspapers across the country. Earl was accused of murdering a white cab driver in Pickens County. Earl was arrested and held in Liberty, South Carolina where a white mob forced the jailer to turn him over to them. They drove Earl to Greenville County, lynched him, and left him for dead. 31 white men sat trial for the lynching, and all of them were acquitted. This left, led to national outrage across the nation and led finally to federal laws against lynching in the United States, 1947. So the, initially, the initial marker text suggested by the community that was planning to pay for this marker um, had a lot of gory language in it. And I agreed that lynching is very violent, it's very gory, but it kind of gave us pause when we had this sort of text proposed to actually approve casting it in aluminum you know, out there on the public, you know, sort of thing. So it was once again trying to balance between going too far one way but still being able to tell the story. So after months of meetings and negotiations, which of course ended up involving a South Carolina representative, the final language was toned down a bit but still told the story of lynching and mob violence. So instead of discussing trails of blood and um, broken saplings and things like that. You know, just said that he was mortally wounded and lynched and his body was left by the side of Bramlett Road. And the marker is going to go near the location where Willie Earl was left to die. So some of the lessons we learned from this marker, there were a lot, um, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> 
But basically, you know, the marker program is set up to interpret history for the public. And, you know, there was, in the case of the community that proposed the marker, there was this assumption that Earl was actually innocent of the crime of murdering the cab driver, but nobody knows. Nobody knows what happened. You know, he was lynched. It was over. That was that. Um, there's no evidence one way or another to show. So we, in our marker, we made sure to kind of avoid that, um, avoid that question and not reflect a bias one way or the other about the accusation of murder. So it interprets, the, the marker interprets the outcome of the white mobs trial, but really kind of stays mum on the issue of Earl's innocence. So we stick to the known historical facts, things that we're able to prove. And then it also came up into this really, and I've heard this several times in presentations here at this conference, over this kind of, I guess, conflict over who owns history. You know, is it the community that owns history? Is it the trained historians? Is it the museum? Is it the archives? You know, everyone has a stake in history and feels that sometimes they're the best ones to tell the story. We did not intend in this situation to set ourselves up as a government agency versus the community. But that is how the community initially viewed us and our comments on the initial marker when we were coming into this, the comments on the text of the marker. The local African-American community felt that the story of Earl's lynching should be told in their own words, using violence, violent language, and they also wanted to state the names of the men that defended the white mob in trial. But set, so set in this framework, the community became um, combative with us and um, ended up getting, you know, kind of high up into the political realm of the discussion over the marker. But I feel that if we had initially collaborated with the community and kind of discussed our concerns and had a little bit more of an open dialogue as opposed to they suggest something and we write a letter back saying, no, we don't like it, this is what we suggest, you know, the process for approving the marker may not have ended up as volatile. But, of course, the, a key thing to remember is that you can't please everyone. So, even though we as a state agency would like to try. <laughs> so, those are kind of the two of the recent um, markers that we've done, kind of the issues that we've come across in interpreting um, the problem at the difficult past in South Carolina with these racially based motivated murders. Working with the um, South Carolina African American Heritage Commission and um, the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor in South Carolina this summer, um, we had held a diversity forum to kind of discuss some of these issues as well. And these are the recommendations that came out of that forum, which you see a lot of them kind of are in common with what I've decided and what Marty has seen in North Carolina and I'm sure Angela will probably say too. But, um, you know, host public meetings to allow the community to become a part of the decision-making process. Um, know and understand the whole community and try to serve the whole community. Allow people to define themselves for themselves. Engage in collaborativeness instead of absolute musts. Kind of like our experience with the Willie Earl marker, you know, we need to have been more collaborative in saying, saying no this is not appropriate, you know, because we're a state agency or something like that. <laughs> um, they recommended to focus on community assets rather than pain 
However, don't forget the pain. It's a motivating factor in creating change. And I would add to that recommendation, it's also a historical fact. It's part of the whole community that they say to know and understand, recommend to know and understand the whole community. That's part of it. There's no need to whitewash history, and if we do, we're doing the whole community a disservice. And also, uh, the last suggestion is to remember the art of storytelling. Um, it's a very southern tradition, but I'm sure it's found across America. But it also helps heal and bond people together and identified shared past, which is something that can come out of the community meetings and things in anticipation of um, engaging a problematic event or a controversial event in the past. So in conclusion, I would like to leave you with some of this food for thought, and this is a recently identified site in South Carolina. This, ro these rock carvings and paintings were found near the Packlet Mill Village in rural upstate South Carolina. The carvings date from the 1940s, which is about the same time as the lynching of Willie Earl. The historian that recorded these carvings believes that they could be a historically significant site, which shows the emergence and the development of 20th century Southern heritage and identity. So these markings are not, these carvings are not proposed for a marker right now, but they could be. And I'm curious after the presentations are over, if you choose to share what you think we should do and what you would do if something like this came up, came into your um, you know, community and someone wanted to say something about it. It's outside of Packlet, South Carolina. It's in Spartanburg County. So thank you. <laughs> is going to be giving the coordinates of this site. Though. I don't know the coordinates of the site. <laughs> Thank you very much. Rebecca. You're welcome. You clearly heeded Charles Tilden via Marty Matthews' advice to be provocative. <laughs> Our uh, third speaker is Angela Reed. Angela holds a BA in Sociology and International Studies from St. Edwards University in Austin and an MA in Humanities and Public, pu public History uh, from New York University. In New York, Angela worked for the Tammanet Library and Wagner Archives, primarily with the Archives Oral History Collection on labor union and leftist radical political history. Now back in Austin, she works as historian and resource specialist for the Historic Sites and Structures Program of the Texas Park and Wildlife Department. Within the Historic Sites Program, Angela works primarily with Civilian Conservation Corps history and also provides research support for various state historic sites throughout Texas. Uh, she too is active in the National Council on Public History. She is a member of NCPH's Long Range Planning Committee, uh, which is developing a five-year strategic plan uh, for the organization. And her case study is entitled, Whether, How, and Where, Telling the Story of African Americans in Civilian Conservation Corps exhibits. Angela, thank you. Thanks, Bob. Can you guys hear me? Because the microphone's different now. And yeah, the lights would be great. Thanks. Um, as Bob said, I work with Texas State Parks and in the Historic Sites Program. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about a couple of projects we did over the past few years. One was a traveling exhibit, and the other was a website. 
Um, as many of you may know, or maybe you don't, in 2009, um, that, that marked the 75th anniversary of the Civilian Conservation Corps, also known as the CCC, which was one of the New Deal work programs uh, in, uh, created by Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Great Depression. Uh, the CCC employed men generally from the ages of 17 to 28, also some war veterans at the time, from families that had little or no income. These men worked in conservation jobs. You may have heard them called the tree army. They did plant trees, they, uh, they farmed, they built dams, and in parks, they built trails and uh, some structures that stand today and bridges. And that's where we come in. We have 29 CCC-built parks in the Texas State Park System. The CCC employed an estimate of 3 million men nationwide during its tenure from 1933 to 1942. In addition to the $30 that these men earned and sent home, they also had opportunities to continue their high school education. Some of them even learned to read. They learned work skills that uh, employed them after the CCC into their retirement. The court gave the men uh, clean work clothes, they gave them grooming supplies, three meals a day, an opportunity to, uh, to travel outside of their hometowns, and they enjoyed camaraderie with other young men uh, of their same age. And these were considered luxuries that many of these men had never had before in their lives. Now, as you know, I work for the Texas State Parks. This is a CCC rendering of the uh, state parks in Texas in the late 1930s. Uh, and while parks across our state and the nation were celebrating the CCC's legacy during the anniversary year, our program set out to create a traveling exhibit uh, and later a website that would travel to the 29 state parks throughout Texas. And this is, a, uh, this is our nine-panel exhibit with the artifacts, the pedestals in the center, and some close-ups of our, a few of the panels on the, on the edges. Um, our goal was to highlight CCC architecture. It, it had a distinctive back-to-nature style. It had a conservation, conservation method. And that was what our exhibit was to be about. We also included a brief history of the CCC. We had a, a ton of historic photographs. That was some of our richest of resources. And we really tried to include one photograph for every CCC park that was in the state park system in this nine-panel exhibit. Well, as we started to look through the photographs and consider our captions and look at the best ones, uh, we realized that we, we might have a little bit of an issue in interpretation. Several of our park's photos showed only African-American men in the Corps. Uh, that is sub notable subject matter when you're looking at 1930s material. At least one image, and you'll notice the bottom photo, I hope you guys can see that, was of uh, a, a white group photo of CCC men and the African-American men are off to the side and away from, from the whites in the picture. Now, we knew that the CCC mandated segregation in 1935 and that prior to 35, the parks were integrated, so uh, the photos were no surprise. We also knew that of the three million men who reaped all those benefits that I mentioned earlier, only 250,000 of those men nationwide were African-American, and even of those 250,000, they were often given the more menial jobs than that of their white counterparts. So we know this. We, we knew that we were going to have these photographs, but when we were faced with actually putting them in our exhibit and interpreting them, we were 
not sure if this was the place, um, if this was uh, the time during a CCC celebration year, um, or if we were to interpret it, would it send our, our exhibit onto a completely different type of topic? And remember, this exhibit was supposed to be about architecture. It would be displayed at uh, gatherings like this. They were CCC reunions. There were multiple generations of CCC veteran family members. And the CCC men were there to show off their, the fruits of their labor you know, that had existed um, throughout these 75 years. And so this small debate ensued amongst our staff. And uh, what might have been a simple caption grew a little more complicated. And remember, we're just talking about a caption here. So here was the image that prompted our debate. This is of uh, a dam construction at Fort Parker State Park. And it's not necessarily evident that the men in this photo are African American. But my colleagues and I know that this park, Fort Parker, was built by African American enrollees just after segregation and the CCC was enforced. It was the only CCC camp in Texas that, except for the supervisors, enrolled solely African-American men. This park had never been integrated. And at seven years, it was one of the longest continu continuous CCC camps in the state system. It was also a park that, because of segregation laws, the men in this picture and men in, in later years uh, weren't allowed to enjoy more than 20 years after they built it. So because of this history, it is a special park, and it is, it is recognized statewide. The CCC alumni group is very active. They meet here every year. They've, they've settled in the region after the CCC. And uh, they're very proud of their accomplishments at this park, and they're proud of their African-American heritage. So knowing this, and knowing that this park would almost assuredly have our exhibit every year, um, and we hope to feature this park because it was a special, special park, and well-known around the state, we, shall, we felt that we should at the very least make the distinction that that image that I showed you was of African-American men, and even more, we hoped that we could talk a little bit about that segment of CCC history. So um, this was our first flailing attempt at, at a caption. It's really um, kind of embarrassing to show because not only is it kind of boring, it's, <laughs> it's, it, our editor didn't like it. And she, um, she responded with, it was condescending for us to uh, identify the race of the enrollees in this caption if we didn't do so in other captions. However, if we were to talk about race, that we should talk about it. And of course she was right. And so we persevered on this little caption. And as you can tell, it got pretty marked up throughout the process. And if, you've, if any of you have, have tried to write captions, you realize how difficult they can sometimes be. Um, this was a bigger topic than uh, what we started with. And it was almost too big for one caption nested in an, an exhibit about architecture. And yet we increasingly felt that we had a responsibility to present this truth um, and that we weren't doing the park or this segment of CCC history justice if we did not. So in the end, this is the caption that rests under the photograph. It, it's the same thing as we started with, but we added, um, although the CCC camps were originally integrated, some southern states lobbied to segregate camps, and in Texas, African-American enrollees were limited to 10% of all CCC enrollees. Um, it's still pretty cut and dry. 
It's about the extent that we felt that we could express in an architectural exhibit. Uh, we had to be true to uh, what, what uh, the facts were for southern states in general and what was true for Texas specifically. But it sums up the segregation history of the CCC, and it doesn't send the exhibit into another trajectory. Well, when our team developed the content, content for the CCC website, uh, it's also about architecture. We made the glorious realization that we could actually go on a lot of different tangents, and that's the great, uh, the great thing about website exhibits. We viewed the website as a tool for discovery, uh, that one might come to it with an interest in CCC history, go away with an appreciation for architecture, or maybe seek the history of a specific part and, and then come back with some knowledge about African-American history in the CCC. There are all kinds of possibilities, and we decided to take advantage of that. After working with the panel exhibit, we knew that African-American segregationist history of the CCC was a topic we wanted to talk about, and yet still in this space, this web space, we really could only have it as a tangential topic. I should mention that this was a grant-funded project. Both projects were grant-funded, and, and this is how we presented that we would we would develop the content that it would be about architecture, so we had to stay with that format. Um, the way we handled it, I'm going to try to go back to uh, the Internet. I'm not sure if I can do it. Uh, let's see. This isn't my computer, so excuse me while I fumble around. We have this interactive program, which has uh, four short videos, if it will load. And I'm afraid that it might be too slow, so I'm going to go back to my... My PowerPoint, sorry, I was really hoping that it would work. Um, we have four short videos, and they're, they're called the Interactive Program, and one of them is about camp life. If you were to click on the camp life, it basically um, tells you about uh, everyday life in the CCC. Within that video, there's a segment that talks about African-American history in the CCC, which is the what you're seeing here on the PowerPoint. This is part of that segment. And if you look to the right of the screen, what you see as related stories, those are small icons. And as they're talking about a topic, um, one of these icons will expand. So the, the viewer, uh, viewer's attention is drawn to the fact that there are, there's more to the story if you want to pursue it. So uh, in this case, once it starts to talk about African-American history, the middle icon would expand, which is African-American contributions, and you come to a page, which we call sort of a, a, a side exhibit on this website, and it scrolls down. There's quite a bit of information there about African-American history in the CCC, and then as you can see, there are further photos that are fully captioned that talk about the CCC. So uh, this is how uh, it, well, it also refers back to the parks, um, so you can go back to the specific parks and look at Fort Parker, Goose Island, Palo Duro, some of the, the camps that were segregated in Texas. So this is how we chose to handle uh, the topic in our website. And we haven't received any feedback, positive or negative. We're hoping that, um, that the subject matter blends fairly seamlessly 
in this exhibit about really about another topic altogether, but we also worry that we haven't said enough. We did go from not having this topic on our radar at all to showing it a little bit in our traveling exhibit to bringing it out even more in our website. And moving forward, we realized that even as a state agency with a celebratory message, um, we are tasked with trying to bring people to the parks. We still have an obligation to tell this part of the story because if we don't, we fail to tell the whole truth. We learned that there's no reason to be timid or concerned about the reactions of, own, of uh, the viewers. And in the coming two years, we'd like to secure grant funding for special projects in race matters specifically about, uh, within the CCC, not only about African Americans in the CCC, but of that of Mexican Americans, which comes up an, a lot in Texas. That's something people ask us about routinely. Um, so to answer to the title of my presentation, whether, yes, how, however, is true, and where, wherever the story of the CCC is told. This particular history of the CCC is part of all of the CCC's history. Thank you. Because this session is being audio recorded, we need to um, take your questions and respond using this microphone. So I think what we're going to do is move to the table here, take the microphone uh, with us, and I'll try to remember to repeat your questions, um, and, and I'll pass this off to my colleagues. But I hope we've given you a considerable food for thought, and I think we'd all be interested in hearing uh, your responses to how uh, resolution did or did not happen at the ACOC birthplace, to uh, the interesting stories of historical markers, uh, Rebecca's leaving us with that provocative KKK uh, graffiti, and um, the possibilities and challenges for websites taking up where uh, traveling exhibits leave off. But really, more generally, I think your experiences in the trenches of public history or something that I'd like to encourage in the 15 minutes or so that remain. And I know we have an official break for a half hour. I'm sure we could stay into that half hour. So maybe what I'll do is adjourn us formally in 15 minutes and then we can continue if there's any interest at all. Any questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. So the question was con the wording of conflict versus massacre in one of the historical markers. Okay, we had, because of what had happened, it wasn't necessarily, I guess, um, a fair fight and why it was why we didn't try to go for conflict. Um, the African Americans had were fleeing the scene of the fight between the white militia and them, and they were then captured and ex and four of them were executed, which is why we went we thought that it was more appropriate to say a massacre just based on um, what the actual type of i guess killing that had occurred it wasn't necessarily within fighting it was during retreat and fleeing, and it was more of a massacre in that way than, than anything else. Yes. Uh, 
mortally wounded to what the original text was to see white Yes, the question was about mortally wounding versus beaten, bloodied, and left for dead. <laughs> and yes, um, that was that was a big point of contention um, between, especially the local community and then our office. Yeah, that it didn't. Um, you know, when you use the word lynching, you know, it does. You have an idea in your head what that means, but you could get a lot more detailed as to what that occurred, um, you know, what exactly occurred during the lynching. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was one of the problems that the, um, that the community had was that what we had proposed for mortally wounded was not enough. Um, they did ultimately decide to accept that. And um, I think because of um, some negotiations between our director and um, the park representative, um, it got a little political, unfortunately, I think. Um, and um, so that's what it ended up happening. But I agree, it's a pretty big change. That's correct, but as far as, yes, they, they are planning to erect the marker with the text that was ultimately approved by our office. Um, there's a group of African-American citizens in Greenville County that have gotten together to, um, you know, it's actually, um, they're, they're formed under another name, but they've decided to do a Willie Earl lynching trail um, where they want to mark, you know, the because he was, you know, the the murder of the cab driver happened in Pickens County, which is a couple of counties over from Greenville County where he was actually lynched. So they want to actually have an interpretive trail that kind of starts over in Pickens County and ends up in Greenville County. Um, you know, initially they wanted to have a, a his state historical marker for each kind of stop on the trail, like this is where the cab driver was murdered, this is, you know, Willie Earl came to this jail, this is where he was taken out by the mob, and then ultimately ending up in Greenville County on Bramlett Road where the lynching occurred. Um, but um, we felt that it was important just for one marker to be able to tell that entire story at the site of the lynching itself. There's also Another marker that was associated with this for the Greenville County Courthouse that on one side interprets the county courthouse's architecture, but on the other side interprets the trial of the 31 white men who were acquitted and um, the fact that it led to anti-lynching legislation um, in the federal government.
Sure. Did you? This is a question from the uh, Georgia Historical Marker Program um, about whether, about the whole, how our experience with these markers has changed our process in doing markers. Um, the issue with the Willie Earl marker is, um, was really kind of an extreme. I think it kind of took us all a little bit by surprise, but now looking back on it, I'm kind of like, why hasn't this happened before? Um, we still have no money to fund markers, but we have what has happened with our process is that we have clarified our guidelines for markers, guidelines on, um, you know, what is appropriate for a marker. We don't just mark anything, um, and guidelines on how uh, the markers go through our office. I mean, it is in state legislation that this marker program is created and administered by the State Department of Archives and History. So, you know, that's in the legislation. But I also think that in addition to clarifying our guidelines, we're now going to be, I think, a lot more aware of the way that, you know, of, of including more dialogue in the community in more dialogue, especially in a marker of something that's, you know, you know, <laughs> racially based killing or something like that, you know, that could be very controversial. I think that the Willie Earl marker was a wake up call for us in a way um, that, you know, yeah, these markers have a lot of importance to the community and we need to be talking to a lot of people, not just sitting in Columbia, you know, saying this is what we think. So. So for the record, a representative of Historic Columbia Foundation uh, it has been doing this sort of thing in terms of uh, consulting with the community. Other questions? Yes. <clears throat> The question was uh, whether or not we consulted with the Fort Parker uh, alumni group, CCC alumni group, about the caption, um, and have we received any feedback? No one, no. <laughs> um, the, the caption itself was uh, 
I wish that we had. I, I think going forward we will and we do, um, you know, larger exhibits on this. But because uh, it was one caption and we were under a time crunch and it was sort of a surprise to us that we even realized that we needed to interpret this history because, like I said, that it was an architecture exhibit and that's how we had developed all of our content. And it wasn't until we were down to that level of, of uh, writing the captions for each photo that we, we realized we really needed to go further with this particular photo. So, no, we did not uh, reach the alumni group. I wish we had. I think we should. Um, and I know that my colleagues feel the same way. And, um, and feedback, uh, as I mentioned, we, we really haven't heard anything. And, again, I think it's because the main topic is about architecture. But um, uh, no one's said anything one way or the other, which I think is, is heartening, really, that this is, this is a piece of history. And... Um, I like I like to know that no one's disagreeing with the fact, or at least that we know of, uh, that we're presenting it. So I hope that answers your question. I have a question for Marty um, about the dust. Um, I, I noticed that the way that you address context. I'm curious to know if that's something you've done. I'll try to summarize your question. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm I'm hearing that. How do you deal with a person who is uh, good on the one hand, bad on the other? How do you reconcile those two parts of his or her personality? Is that is that? A well, and how, I saw you addressed it a different way mm -hmm. um, by going sort of for the, the larger topic, and I'm curious if you tried to um, to address the individual. I uh, we have a lot of, of of site staff who enjoy the phrase that. He was a man of his time. We hear we hear that a lot. We hear that from the public when we have uh, focus groups. We hear that, and we have to remember this: this was a man of his time. I, I don't particularly like that phrase. I, I think that it's more important to remember that he's a human being and he's complex. Uh, there were men of his time who did not think the way that he thought. Uh, most of whom were African American men of their time, but there were white men of their time as well. So we try to talk about the complexities of human nature. That's the way we try to deal with it. That's the way I have been pushing that we deal with it. And a very, a very important part of what we do is a woman named Michelle Lanier, who is our curator of multicultural initiatives. And she and I have talked about this whole concept of a man of his time, a woman of his time, whatever. And we really try to stress to, to recognize the complexities of any human being. And that's the way we try to handle it.
yet we won't put the realities out there about history. And we're the ones doing that. I'm wondering what your I'm wondering what your response to that is. When we have exhibits like at um, the Indianapolis Children's Museum that reach children the stories of Anne Frank and Ryan White and Ruby Bridges, and they're telling it very truthfully in a children's museum, what I, uh, again, I'll try to summarize your question in that are we not recognizing the public's ability to accept the, the, the truth, the ugly nature of the truth sometime, and by doing that, are we being less than forthcoming with them by not showing them? And that's a very good question. Uh, I don't think you will ever see the N-word at one of our historic sites, regardless of context. That's not going to happen uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I don't make that decision. Uh, we have oral histories that we have used where, where African Americans have used the N-word, and it was very compelling, and the stories they told were, were, were very emotional. And if we could figure out a way to do it, and this is terrible to say, but I'm just going to be upfront with you. If we could figure out a way to do it so that it was not so expensive, so that we could have a, a, a an adult or a, a more mature area where we could use those words and, and have those terms, uh, that might be an answer to that. Uh, but I do think we need to recognize that we are not <laughs> CSI. We are not... Uh, some of these programs that that are on television simply, you know, seek to to offend or to, uh, I guess, hyperbole is is the, the best way to put it. And uh, I think we have a responsibility to to everyone who comes in that museum, and short of posting a warning, and we could do that, graphic images, something like that. I still think we have a responsibility as a state agency, who is being funded by taxpayers' dollars to not soft pedal, and we have been, you know, we have a, a gentleman who goes to that museum quite often and he's constantly writing letters, you're not, you're not being hard enough on ACOC, you're not being hard enough on ACOC. But we had to make these decisions over what these editorial cartoons we were going to present. And some of the, yeah, it, the, the imagery was very offensive, and uh, so that was an editorial, that's part of interpretation. And that's the decision. And I agree with you that the public could probably take it. Uh, and it could be something that, you know, you could have a panel that you raise and you look under the panel and you don't have to do it. But there, there are ways to get around that. But that's the way we decided to do that. And I'm sorry, I hogged all your time. Oh, no, that's okay. Do you want to say anything? After Rebecca speaks, I'll formally adjourn you and remind you about the evaluation forms. I was just going to say I personally agree with you that I think it was a little bit soft-pedaled. That's a personal me as a historian, unfortunately, um, a lot of times working for a state agency, politics come into play. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I'll say you're a very attentive audience, and you're not at, at all like my students who start rustling at 10.15. So, um, but in fairness to those who want to leave, um, it is a little past 10.15. Uh, feel free to go. We are happy to stay until the next session kicks us out. Uh, just to remind you, there is a flyer 
in the back with our names and contact information and websites. Uh, do fill out the um, evaluation form. And if you're all at all interested in the Forum on Historical Consulting, there are some copies of Public History News. There is also a membership form if you would like. So thank you all for coming. And as I said, uh, we're ready to, to stay till midnight, I think. Oh, okay. Thank you.